Chapter 11 of The Great Gold Rush, A Tale of the Klondike. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kathy Barrett. The Great Gold Rush, A Tale of the Klondike, by W. H. P. Jarvis. Chapter 11. Another Pass. John and Hugh could not resist the temptation of looking at the far-famed Chilkoot Pass ere they turned for the last time from the Great Divide. So they mounted the steep ascent from Crater Lake to the summit. Reaching this, they found a great array of caches, or drifts of snow, the formation of which suggested a cache beneath them. A half-dozen policemen were levelling the new site for their tents. "'A desperate situation for an encampment,' said John, but there was no other. Looking down the pass, it presented a picture like nothing so much as a great funnel, with the side towards the sea broken out. Through this passage from the sea a long line of ant-like figures, human beings, each laden with his load, was pouring towards them. The town of Lindemann was reached at three o'clock. At five they arrived at Bennett. Dude rose up from his bed on the snow and looked at them, but the four other dogs were bundles of fur before the camp, refusing to give even a silent welcome. "'Hurrah!' cried Bruce. "'Here you are at last. I knew you would turn up safe and sound, so stayed home to have something hot ready.' The two were ready for another meal, and as George had set up the camp-stove in the tent, they were comfortable. As soon as his partners had started on the morning of the storm, George had set to work and put the stove in the tent, and for the balance of the day, till the storm came, had been cutting firewood, with no other idea than to keep busy. And great was his reward, for he had enough to do and to think of to keep him supplied during the storm and the severe weather that followed. Then, at seven or eight o'clock, after the snow had been falling several hours, a low wail came from outside the tent door. Dude! You got the note on Dude's collar, inquired Hugh. Yes, but I didn't go after the grub, being too anxious about you. That was right. The Chechakos will have the trail beaten for us tomorrow. I only sent it in case we did not turn up, which we came pretty near not doing. How have your neighbors been getting on? Doing much quarreling? No, they've had too much trouble keeping warm, and have limited their disputes as to who should go out into the storm and cut wood. They weren't as lucky as I in having a good supply at hand. How the wanderers appreciated their warm bed under the lynx-skin robe that night, for in their late abode the chill of the ice and water had seemed to penetrate their bones. The next day Hugh took a piece of canvas, and with a needle fashioned a sail, after which he fixed a mast in the front of the sleigh and set the sail. "'You see,' he explained, "'when spring sets in, the wind generally blows from the south, and we might as well make it work for us.' As it did when they started on the morning following. A breeze from the south filled the sail and helped the sleigh over the frozen surface of Lake Bennett. It was three o'clock, and as they were close upon the end of March, the days were lengthening wonderfully, so that they had not been an hour on the trail when daylight came. As the light increased, so did the wind, which relieved the dogs of almost all the weight of the load.' The trail was good, and by eleven o'clock they had travelled the twenty miles to Caribou Crossing, the site of the present town of Carcross. Here Hugh called a halt, declaring they had done a good day's work, and that the recently abandoned camping-ground at which they then were was too good to pass. So the dogs were unhitched, and their evening meal put to boil. While this was in process, the tent was erected and the bed made. The second day out from Lake Bennett was much like the first, and so it was until the fourth day, when they reached Miles Canyon and the White Horse Rapids. From Lake Bennett they passed Windy Arm to Tagish Lake, and on Marsh Lake, which followed, they got more away from the mountains when their range of vision became greater. 
When they arrived at the foot of Marsh Lake, which merged into Miles Canyon, they found a number of men putting in a tramway, over which horses would haul freight when navigation opened, thus covering the five miles and avoiding the danger of the canyon and the rapids. They hauled their load along the route of the tramway to below the rapids, where the waters of the Yukon were known as the Fifty Mile River. Here they found a number of men building boats, but they kept steadily on. Below White Horse Rapids, fewer men were on the trail. Some they met were traveling south, gaunt and haggard, unshaven, uncouth, loud of voice and wild of eye. These men had traveled the long trail from Dawson, five hundred miles it was, and the heavy toil and hard food had told on their minds and natures. The party covered the fifteen miles from Whitehorse to where the fifty mile enters Lake Leberge, when the crust had become so soft that they could not travel, so they camped. Recently the trail had taken on new conditions, that of standing higher than the snow on either hand, like the back of a great serpent. The fact was that the general level of snow was settling under the warmth of the sun, while the trail, being packed hard, remained as it was. The tent was up, and the bed made by noon. Hugh planned that the party should go to bed at three, and hit the trail again at midnight. There would be no wind to aid them further, for as they left the coast range, the diurnal breeze had failed. Their own efforts and those of the dogs must haul the load the final stage of thirty miles to the foot of Lake Leberge, where they were to build their boat. They ate their dinner and spread spruce boughs, over which they placed their blankets and enjoyed a rest in the glorious sunlight. The view from the tent was beautiful. To the north lay the stretch of the lake, on either hand of which were great rounded hills, all dazzling white. To the south, far distant, were heavy ranges of mountains. The air was that of peace and hope and seemed full of promise of the glorious summer soon to burst over this vastness of solitude, melting the snows and flooding the hillsides with floral beauty. Presently they saw two black specks crossing the frozen lake far beneath, which eventually proved to be two human figures approaching, one some distance behind the other. The first was hauling a sled, slowly, and evidently with difficulty. Hugh at once acted. He put the kettle to boil, and filled a frying-pan with beans and bacon. "'I guess those fellows coming up the lake will need a little grub when they get here,' he explained. "'At least they can drink tea if they're too plumb played out to eat.' The actions of the leading man were very erratic. Frequently he would stop, place his hand before his eyes, and when again he endeavoured to start, would stagger, plunging into the softened snow, which broke under him, bringing him to the knees. "'Snow-blind,' was Hugh's comment. The stranger seemed to smell the smoke from the campfire, and gave a wild hullo. The three answered the call. He turned towards the sound, and when he saw the camp he shook himself free of the harness and plunged through the soft snow towards it. When he saw the blankets stretched before the tent, he threw himself on them at full length, and with his fingers at his eye-sockets, groaned. Sympathy being often better expressed by doing nothing, the man was left in his misery for some ten minutes. Hugh then poured him out a cup of tea, to which was added much sugar and condensed milk. The man raised his head at a word, and showed his blackened face, made horrible by the streaks of tears and perspiration. He drank the refreshment greedily. Hugh explained the man's curious appearance. This fellow has been taking a leaf out of the Siwash's book and blackening his face. The black saves the eyes a whole lot from the glare of the sun. The campers turned their attention to the second traveller, now plainly in sight, and noticed that the pack on his back jolted him horribly, as he broke through the trail at every third or fourth step. As he wore glasses, he was evidently not in distress from his eyes. He saw the camp, staggered to it, and threw himself down, pack and all, sitting with his back against the load. 
He stared at the man in agony on the blankets. "'Hello, there's Bill. <laughs> I told the blame fool not to travel without glasses. Wake up, Bill, and tell us your dreams. How's that wife you're so struck on outside, and you in such a hurry to give your dust to? Oh, Bill, wake up!' As the prostrate man gave no sign of hearing, his hilarious companion turned to the others, and in more moderate tones continued, "'Bill and me have come from Dawson together, and he has near killed himself.' me too, trying to get out and see his wife and kids. And this morning nothing would do him, but he must go and tramp on his glasses and bust them. I told him to lay up to-day and travel to-night, but he wouldn't. Must keep moving to get to his wife. Ha! <laughs> wife be damned! I ain't got no wife. Hugh interrupted the tirade. Have some beans? Sure thing! Beans, yes! Nothing like beans on the trail. Besides, I don't mind eating your beans, seeing my own grub-pile is most petered out. "'Just a little flour and baking powder left. "'Not much good to travel on.' "'The man fell to eating. "'His manner turned from hilarity to morosity. "'He bolted his food. "'Soon his companion on the blankets moved and gasped, "'Don't let that hog eat all the beans. "'I want some. "'Ha! I thought Bill wasn't dead. "'You're just a bluffer, ain't you, Bill? "'Say, Bill, let's turn round and go back to Dawson. "'We can travel along with these fellows. "'They have lots of grub, and we can buy off them.' It was evident to John and his friends that if the first stranger was the worse affected in physical condition, the second was mentally the more upset. The snow-blinded sufferer raised himself and took from Hugh the plate of beans and a second cup of tea. This man ate slowly, while his partner continued to talk. You see, me and Bill came from Dawson together, and when we got to Thirty Mile we found it open, and the blame sleigh was always sliding into the open water. I wanted Bill to chuck the sleigh and pack our grub and blankets, but Bill wouldn't. So I says, I'll pack my half, and you can haul your half, and that's the way we've been coming. Bill had a hell of a time with his sleigh sliding into the river, and then coming up the lake, he never could keep it on the trail. No wonder he's bug-house. When the first arrival had finished his meal, Hugh led him into the tent and bathed his eyes with fresh-made tea. In the tent the sufferer was free from the glare of the sun. Hugh hung a dark grey blanket from the ridge-pole, so that if the sufferer opened his eyes he could fix his gaze upon it. Then he went out. "'How's Bill?' asked the erratic one. "'Better, I hope. Not bug-house yet?' "'I don't think so.' "'Well, if he ain't bug-house, he is sure locoed on that wife of his.' Hugh made no reply, and the other continued. "'Ha! That's Bill Stanbridge. Owns in on Eldorado with Slim Mulligan, who's in charge now, and will look after the clean-up. My name is Frank Miller. Just blew in about the time Carmack made discovery, but went and used my rights on Boulder Creek. Boulder showed up better on surface than Bonanza or Eldorado, but there's nothing on bedrock in Boulder.' As the man got his mind away from his partner, his conversation indicated less disorder of intellect. Hugh, quickly noticing the change, and with a view to further the good process, asked, "'How's Dawson?' "'Dawson? She's fine. Lots of grub. Old Healy gave the boys a spiel last fall that they'd all starve if they stayed in the country, and then the speculators corralled all the grub and run up prices. But they're loosening now. You can get a pretty good meal of beans now for two dollars and a half, even at Miss Mulroney's. Say, that girl is making money. How's Bonanza?' "'Good. But Eldorado is better. Bills go ground, some of it going five hundred dollars to the pan for picked dirt. But this high-grade pay, the government is going to send their yellow legs round to relieve the boys of ten per cent, and fellows with poor ground will have to pay as well as the fellows on Eldorado. That ain't fair. It's fair to charge for the administration of the country in keeping law and order, said George. 
to hell with law and order. You're a Chechico, or you wouldn't talk like that. Miners' meetings make pretty good law courts, and now they have law and order, fellows begin to lock their doors. The country was a whole lot better before ever it saw an official. Yes, but the gang going in now will make things different, said Hugh. You're an old-timer. Thought so when I first swallowed your beans. Chechikos don't know how to boil beans like that. You'll find a big change round Rabbit Creek when you blow in there. Its gamblers and saloon men most have the good claims. Of course, Carmack had to put his wife's relations in next to him on discovery, and when the crowd got up from Forty Mile, they staked on Boulder Gulch and Adams Gulch. Neither any good. But say, they've got Dawson a hot town. He laughed. Games run in night and day, all the fun you want, but no gunplay. The yellow legs will put you on a woodpile right away quick if ever you make a break. And it ain't no fun to be sawing wood at forty below with the yellow legs and a Winchester standing over you for the glory of the Queen of England. Frank Miller's mind was lapsing. End of chapter eleven.